Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do rejoice that we can come before you. That we, we could see your majesty, your glory, your greatness. Father, as we open up the scriptures, let me see it even in greater depth. By your Holy Spirit, teach us, guide us in the way that we should go. Let us live lives that reflect the glory that we have in Christ Jesus. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Pastor Jake and I were talking this morning in his office and he was saying how you got a great psalm this morning. And I said, you know, it's, it's hard to have a favorite psalm. I mean, think about it for just a moment. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jake talked about Psalm 1, this grand entrance into the Psalter. It's a beautiful psalm in and of itself. Many of us know Psalm 23. Maybe we memorized it as children. Another great psalm. Many of us think about David, Psalm 51, when it comes to the sin in our lives and needing to confess. At other times, like this morning with the infant baptism that we did, we might think of Psalm 139, I am wonderfully and fearfully made. There's a lot of great psalms. But we have Psalm 8 this morning. As I was reading and preparing for this one, this particular song, there's a commentator by the last name Johnston, James Johnston, and he talks about this particular psalm. And he talks about it in terms of starting in Psalm 1 and reading through. Psalm 1 opening up the grandeur of all that lies ahead of us, depicting Christ throughout the different psalms that are there. And then last week I did Psalm 3 and we saw how that was a psalm of lament. But then you have 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. Johnston says, it's as if you enter into a tunnel and it's dark and then you break forth. He gives the analogy of being in Colorado, Loveland Pass. Before you had to go a long way around, now there's the Eisenhower Tunnel. It's a mile and a half long. You enter into that pitch black darkness. It opens up on the other side and you see the Rockies in all its grandeur. 11,000 foot above sea level and you see it all. There is an instant of awe and wonder. And that's what happens here in this particular psalm. As I mentioned last week in Psalm 3, there's some firsts in that song. There's some firsts in this one. Everything up to this point has been individualistic. David's crying out loud. He's looking for a deliverer. He's looking for refuge. But here it goes plural. O Lord, our Lord. Speaking to the church as a whole, the people of God. The other thing that's quite different about this one is this is an inclusio. Simply put, that means the way the song starts is the way it ends. It creates these bookends. You start with laud, praise, and you end with the same. But the reason it ends that way is because as you're working through this psalm, you start with God, you go to man, and then at the end, you go break out in doxology and you repeat the phrase all over again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. It's interesting, and I'm not going to get into this very much, but let me, let me show you how this bookend works. 
It starts that way and then it proceeds to man. And it speaks about man in verses 2 through 8. And you really get in depth in that section there. But there is three uses of the word heaven in this psalm. It talks about God's glory being above the heavens. That word is referring to what we would call outer space. And then it drops down and it talks about the heavens in verse 8 where the birds fly, our own atmosphere. And then it talks about heavens above where God is. The third heaven, if you will. Paul referred to it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. John refers to it in Revelation chapter 4. It is God in all His glory above and beyond everything that He has made. That's what's so majestic. This is a nature psalm. It calls our attention to the actual creation that's been made by God. To see it for all its glory. And so in the opening verse of this psalm, you get three things out of this. One, we see and take a look at the grandeur of creation. There's a sense of awe and sense of wonder that we see it. You see it when it's the end of a day. And there's a beautiful sunset. And the sky is like a rainbow of colors. And depending on how much dust is in the air or the way the wind's blowing or if there's been a rain, you get color changes. You see the yellows and the reds and the purples. All of it. Sometimes you got to stop and just take a picture. It starts there. So awe and wonder. And then the next step is you break out and proclaim the majesty and the greatness of God like David does. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. And finally, the third part in this opening phrase is it's an invitation to worship Him. You see His awe and wonder. You proclaim His majesty, His greatness. How can you not bend the knee and worship? This psalm opens with that. It closes with that. Well, I want to look at this. Like last week, this one has four parts. It has the majesty of God. It'll talk about the insignificance of man. And then paradoxically, the significance of man. And then it'll end, as an inclusio does, with repeating the first verse. Well, I've already been talking about the majesty of God. It begins with God's name. In your Bibles, you will see Lord repeated twice. O Lord, all caps, our Lord. That word for Lord in the all caps is what we would say Yahweh. The Greek translation of that is Jehovah. This is the name of the covenant-keeping God. God first introduced Himself to Moses at the burning bush and He says, I am that I am. Yahweh comes out of that. It's the name that God gives Himself to describe His love for us. His covenant with us. How He condescends towards us a fallen race. So whenever we see that, we can't help but go, this is a majestic God. 
a great God above all other little g gods. And then secondly, it's followed up by Lord or Adonai. That just means He's our Master. We are His servant. He is our Creator. We are the creature. It puts things in perspective. Whenever you look at a text such as this that is dominated by wording, by verses that speak about man, in order to understand man in and of himself, and Calvin talks about this in his Institutes, you really need to know God before you know yourself. You need to know God before you know yourself. Because if you don't know God, then you're going to go off into humanism, to secularism, to some other ism, asm, or spasm, if you will. So David starts with God. Many think this is, comes from when he was younger and tending the sheep or the flock that he might have. Being out in the night sky. Sleeping, if you will, under the stars. When I was a boy, 10 or uh, 12 years old, living in California, my father was a pilot. He had an airplane and my grandfather was a pilot. He had an airplane. There was four of us boys and he'd take two of us and my grandfather would take two of us. But every October, we would fly down to Southern California to the Mojave Desert out in the middle of nowhere. We went to a place, it was Hopeville, you can look it up, abandoned Air Force Base. All the runways are still there. But there was this little A-frame left of a hangar. And so it was pilots getting together to put forth their skills as a pilot. They would do all kinds of things that particular weekend. But we got to camp out. We slept on the runway underneath the wings of the planes. But you have heard the term of a night sky or a dark sky preserve. That's what it was in the Mojave Desert. I can still remember looking at the sky. We, would, we wouldn't stay under the wing. We'd pull our sleeping bags out. We'd have an air mattress, so it wasn't just on the tarmac. But looking at the sky, and I, I wish we could still see it the way it was then. But we would see the night sky filled with stars. I could see the Milky Way. But, but here's the other thing. Sometimes at night you'll go outside and you'll see stars, but you can only see the ones that are directly above. This you could see from horizon to horizon. So I understand David when he goes, Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This goes beyond Star Trek. This is the heavens declaring the glory of God at night. I remember years later going and making up my mind that I was going to ask Gayla to get married and going to see a jeweler and his nickname is Diamond Jim. And Diamond Jim went in the back after he found out how much or how little I had to put forth for a diamond ring. But so he comes back out and the, the glass countertop is there and he takes the black velvet and he rolls the black velvet out. And he has a little box that has the diamonds in it. And he places them each one at a time from the lesser in value to the greater in value. But they sparkled on that backdrop. And when he was putting them out, my, my mind wandered back to being a 10, 12-year-old boy and thinking of that night sky. 
Now, now why do I share that with you? I share it with you because we need to be cognizant of Christians. God speaks us to us in two different ways. We started the service with Psalm 19 that speaks of general revelation. The way God speaks to all His creation. Paul says in Romans, you are without excuse because He has made Himself known. The invisible, powerful God. It's innate within every, in, within every one of us. We know he's, He exists. But what do we do? We, we suppress it. We, we push it aside. And then there's special revelation. It's His Word as we have before us here in this Psalm chapter 8. It reveals His glory. It reveals His grandeur. How great that He is. It speaks of the majesty of His name. And I talked about Yahweh. If you have little children, just as Leo and Jack were up here, and I would commend you both to the best of your ability to catechize your children with the catechisms that we have in our faith. And these are meant as pedagogical tools. But there is one of the shorter catechisms question, what is God? The answer is God is a spirit, infinite, internal, unchangeable in His being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Can you not just want to bow down and worship because of who He is? The, the amazing thing is it begins with God, then it transitions into man in our insignificance. Because right away it speaks about the mouth of babies and infants. Now the easiest way that you can get into a lot of translations within this, think of babies as being young children and then the infants being those who are about to be weaned, probably two to three years of age. So toddlers, young children and toddlers. So what do we know about that category of individuals? We know that they're dependent. We know that they're weak. They're not strong. They can't reach for the things. They need you as parents. So there is an insignificance to us as compared to children. But the amazing thing, the amazing thing in this is that God uses us in our weakness. It's a paradox. It's as if the weaker we are, the more He can use us. That strength comes forward out of the mouth of babes. That's what it says here, that you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This particular psalm is quoted throughout the New Testament in various places. One of the places that it is used is in Matthew 21. Jesus himself quotes this. Palm Sunday has happened. He is in the temple. And there it says he is healing the blind. He's healing the lame. He is doing wonders. And the children say, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The scribes and the Pharisees and the priests that are there are indignant. 
They go, what are they saying? As if asking Jesus to make them stop. Jesus says, have you not heard? That out of the mouth of babes and infants you have prepared praise? Well, the scribes of the Pharisees might have been indignant before, but when Jesus said this, James Boyce says they must have become catatonic. Because in quoting Psalm 8, he affirmed three things. He, he affirmed that out of children comes strength and praise that warts off evil. And that those scribes, those Pharisees, are enemies of God. They are foes of God that are depicted in this psalm. The second thing is it affirms that He is the Messiah. That He is the one anointed and sent by God. But thirdly, and most importantly, because it goes back to Psalm 8 here, it affirms that Jesus is God. They found that blasphemous. And yet, those children's voices singing praises to their Messiah and their God shut the mouths of the enemies of God. In weakness, there is strength. Not only that, as David speaks about this weakness, this insignificance that happens when you think about the world, the universe, and everything that's been made. I talked about the Mojave Devers and seeing the stars. David must have tried to put this point forward the best that he could. If you see all this grandeur, all this majesty, all the greatness of God, what is man that you are mindful of him? And that word for man that's used there is a word enosh. It just means human beings, humankind. So David is saying, when I look at everything that you've made, God, who, who are we? That, that we would have any significance at all. David must have thought about the dust being created from the dust of the earth. I'm just a speck. We know now more about the universe that God has created than, than David did. Voyager 2 was launched in 1977, 45 years ago. 45 years ago. Traveling at a speed of over 34,000 miles an hour. Can you fathom that? I can't. When it was next to Neptune some years ago, as it was traveling, it gathered the information, and they had set up this, scientists had set it up to transmit back sound waves that could travel at the speed of light. It it, it took four hours for that transmission to go from Voyager 2 at Neptune to get to us here on Earth. Four hours. Traveling at 186,000 miles per second. The universe is vast, but God is greater. He is transcendent. He is outside of the creation. What He has created. The Psalms talks about later that He can hold the pools of the oceans in the palm of His hand. 
How great is our God? But David is saying how insignificant we are. Why are you even mindful for us? And then it's as if his mind is carried off to Genesis chapter 1. And in so doing, he remembers how man was created. And his mind goes from insignificance to significance. For our text says before us, That the Son of Man, and what is the Son of Man, that you care for Him. You've crowned Him with glory and honor. And you've given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. I love that phrase at the end. The paths of the seas. That word for paths speaks about traveling on the ground. So if you think of the sea that it's talking about and the paths along the ground, the depths of the sea, like we sang in indescribable, from the highest of heights to the depths of the sea. The deepest part of the Pacific Ocean is over 36,000 feet deep. If you took Mount Everest, if you could take Mount Everest and take it off and drop it into that point, there'd still be a mile and two-tenths of water above it. So from the depth of the sea to the heights of the heaven, the majesty of God is proclaimed. David says, we are crowned with glory and honor. That's how you made us. And what's interesting when you start to flush out this text as a whole you you see david proclaiming that we were made a little lower than the heavenly beings that word is elohim which means god now elohim is used elsewhere in scripture to speak about angels but in the context of this speaking of god we are we are made a little bit lower than god Hebrews will talk about angels, and we'll get to that in a moment, but here we're a little lower than God. And as we're studying this week, it was very interesting to see this mediatory position that man has. It's why I believe he is crowned and honored by God. He is the crown jewel of creation. Angels are spirit beings. Animals are bodies with no spirits. But man created in the image of God, is body and spirit, or body and soul. That is what makes us so unique. The ability to be more than just beasts, but just a little lower than God Himself. We're special. That's why we can look at the heavens. That's why we can praise and worship God. The angels worship Him as well. But we have an ability to go beyond them with regards to worship, particularly since the fall, since Adam rebelled in the garden. And now we're redeemed. Angels aren't redeemed. And so we have this special position and He's given us glory and honor, but that didn't last. It didn't last. The fall has left a void in the purpose that mankind was to have, to take dominion over the beasts of the field, over the fish of the sea, or the birds of the air. 
there, there is some sense that we can still control things, but they're not under our dominion. So, this significance that we have in the way that we were created comes back to significance when we're redeemed. When we're redeemed. The author of Hebrews brings up and quotes this particular psalm as well. And he's putting forth for us a contrast between what is in Psalm 8 and speaking of man himself and the second man, Jesus Christ, and the fulfillment for what Adam failed to do. It says beginning in chapter 2 and verse 7, you have made him, Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels. And that word there is angelos. And the reason it's different here than it is in Psalm 8 where it's Elohim and God is Jesus is God. In His humiliation, He took on humanity, which put Him in a likeness with us. That, hence, is the reason for this difference here. But it goes on to say, and you have crowned him, Jesus, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under, under His feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. The author of Hebrews wants us to see that in the majesty of Psalm chapter 8, we see like majesty in Jesus, our Savior. His work that He has done is no less glorious. It is no less majestic. It is no less supernatural. God in the beginning creates the heavens and the earth. He speaks and it's done. Divine fiat out of nothing. But what Jesus did is because He went to the cross, that He died for our sins. He rose for our justification. He ascended where He now rules and reigns. And all things are under His feet. Therefore, those who believe and trust in Christ are taken from darkness into light. From death to eternal life. Paradoxes, yet again. So one must ask this question, if this is our destiny to be like Christ, that He now rules and reigns over everything, but we look around us and we don't have the dominion that we were supposed to have. What is our destiny? What is our purpose in life? Brothers and sisters, it's the commission, the great commission that we've been given to go and make disciples. Not all things, the author of Hebrews says, have been put under His feet as yet. In other words, the consummation hasn't happened. But brothers and sisters, it happens one life at a time. When we share the gospel of Jesus Christ and one becomes born again, is converted becomes a member in the body of Christ, the kingdom grows. We have a privilege 
to enter into, to participate with the spiritual dominion of Christ. And all we have to do is use the means that we've been given. Proclaim His awe, His wonder, His majesty. Proclaim His grace and His forgiveness. Proclaim salvation that is by no one else but Jesus Himself. And as the church grows because of Christ, not because of us, we are privileged to do this. I remember Chuck Raylan years ago talking about when his grandchildren were just little and how they wanted to help their grandfather. Chuck did not discourage them. He did the bulk of the work, but he let them come alongside. That's what God does with us. That's what Jesus is doing with us. All dominion and all authority has been given unto me. All things are placed under my feet and there is a consummation day coming. This psalm here, Psalm 8, looks back to Genesis, but it looks forward to Revelation. And so here, there is a plea, if you will. A plea to all of us as brothers and sisters. Go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a glorious psalm. Psalm. It's also a paradox, but it's a beautiful paradox. It speaks of the glory and majesty of God and the insignificance of man. It, it speaks of, it looks at rebellious people and redeemed people. It looks at sinners and saints. It looks at how weak we are, but how strong we can be through praising God and sharing the gospel. How we're dependent upon Him, but one one day with, in one day we will rule with Christ. How we once had a part in the physical dominion of the wor- world, we now have a spiritual dimension that we can join into. If you know Him, if you worship Him, as in Psalm 8, obey Him. Answer His call to make disciples. But if you don't know Him, Jesus is Creator and Savior. I would invite you to look to Him to pray that you might trust in who He is and what He has done. Receive the forgiveness of sin and life everlasting. Unite to Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, for God's glory alone. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Let us pray. Father, You are indeed majestic and glorious. We cannot help but be in awe and wonder of You. O Lord, kindle our hearts afresh that we might not only worship You and love You, but we would love others enough to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to them and then see You work spiritually awe and wonder and majestic salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.